I love the data, but it is tough to work with. Uh, people who are used to working with uh, financial data uh, would actually be very surprised because they're used to working with public market data where the problem is there's too much data and how do you get signal out of it? So just to kick this off, Kevin, uh, give, give, give us a sense of uh, uh, your typical day or, or you know, uh, how, how uh, mad can it get for you in this role? Uh, maybe that will help us understand what you actually deal with. And then we can get into some more specific questions. Sounds good. Um, I try to structure my typical day, but it doesn't always work. Uh, the typical day for me is split into two different uh, types of days. Uh, I usually spend about two days in the office. Um, that's usually meetings all day uh, so that uh, we all kind of stay on the same page. Um, so I have meetings with all of my direct reports throughout Monday and then Tuesday, uh, it's follow-ups on those for any key issues that had to happen. We try to keep meetings to an absolute minimum at AngelList because people have stuff to do. Um, but the one person that doesn't really apply to is me. Uh, so most people have one to two hours of meetings a week, uh, the, but I am in half those meetings. Uh, so that's kind of my Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday through Friday, I try to make sure that I am out of the office meeting with people who are actually using AngelList. So I'm talking to companies uh, who are fundraising on AngelList, uh, angels who are using it to organize their funding activities, uh, people who are hiring on AngelList, people who are finding their jobs on AngelList, et cetera. So I have a good sense of how they're using it and what they need. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, from where you sit, uh, what kind of impact do you believe is AngelList making, uh, you know, when it comes to angel investing overall? And what do you see as the biggest challenges that you face? Um, sorry, I missed the first half of the question. Sure, sure. So from where you sit, uh, what kind of impact do you see AngelList making on the overall uh, you know, landscape, uh, angel investing or, or you know, entrepreneurial ecosystem? And the second part is, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges you see uh, for AngelList? Oh, yeah. So we're still very excited by AngelList mission. Our, our, we want to bring it to the point where a startup founder can focus on their product and their customers. That's why we have all the pieces of AngelList that we have in the U.S. Um, that we're trying to roll out to uh, market by market. So the hardest one is, of course, raising money. Uh, that's something that every startup needs to do at the beginning once they have their first customers. And it takes a huge amount of focus from the team, the founding team that's spent not delivering product to customers. And that doesn't make sense to us. So uh, AngelList, actually, there's a, a misperception that we make it easier for a startup to raise money. Um, mm -hmm. It's not any more likely that you will get to yes if your startup is using AngelList or meeting an angel on AngelList. That said, the time from uh, that you spend to get to the same answer you would have gotten to anyway, that's a lot less. And so we can 
still allow the founders to focus so much more on their their products and customers. Um, same thing for hiring. Uh, the idea is to make that time uh, be a much smaller proportion of time spent on that to get to a good match that can uh, really help the company and for the employee, the right company for them so that they can get back to building. So we're all about letting founders build. That's our, our mission. And so that's the impact we're looking to have is to make all of this move faster and keep the focus of the founding team on their customers. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest yeah. challenge that we have right now is uh, basically that people do think that uh, AngelList is a place where if they go, then suddenly their startup gets funded. And that's not quite the way it works. Um, what we have really done is provide the tools to the angel community so that they can uh, fund startups with the same professionalism that uh, VCs did all just by using the platform. All the tracking, the legal compliance, everything just happens online. So uh, we can take angel investing to what people thought it was, which is uh, meeting good companies and writing checks and helping them, uh, helping them grow. Um, so we, we have the challenge of focusing both the startups and the angels on the fact that AngelList is a platform that enables angels to fund startups um, uh, more so than a platform where startups come directly for crowdfunding or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, can you give us a, a sense of uh, scale and complexity in terms of uh, operations and, and numbers uh, that you are looking at currently? Sure. Uh, so globally right now, and it's mostly U.S., that's our, our largest market today, um, we are moving about $175 million a year into startups. Um, so that is about uh, a rate of six or 700 startups, new startups a year that raise at least a part of their funding on AngelList. So it's a, a very large number. Uh, most startups, uh, and by that I do mean over 50%, um, tend to use AngelList for their hiring. Uh, so mm -hmm. if you're looking for a startup job or uh, looking to find somebody to work at a startup, there's probably no better platform in the world. Um, so that's in the tens of thousands of people uh, who are finding their jobs on AngelList uh, for, and startups finding uh, uh, tens of thousands of employees to help build them. Mm -hmm. I, I would also uh, imagine that there is massive uh, chunks of data uh, that that you would be looking at, given this is scale and and different startups at different stages. Of course, mostly early in you know stage. Uh, what kind of insights do you look for in 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 this massive uh, data chunk, and uh, how easy or tough it is? I love the data, but it is tough to work with. Uh, people who are used to working with uh, financial data. Uh, would actually be very surprised because they're used to working with public market data where the problem is there's too much data and how do you get signal out of it? Um, when we're working with startup data, we probably have one of the largest startup data sets in the world that's completely clean. And uh, it's still very hard to get signal out of that, that noise. And there are two reasons for that. 
Um, one is the results in startups tend to be nonlinear. It is typical in data analysis to eliminate your outliers. The outliers are all that matter in start in when you're you're in funding startups. So eliminating your outliers is eliminating the only data points that you really want to focus on. So instead, you're looking at how you can draw any statistical conclusions when the results are so nonlinear. Um, the second challenge is you will find that there is very little direct quantitative data that you can use to predict uh, the success of a startup. Um, if mm -hmm. it were, a VC's job would be very easy. Instead, um, it works very differently because uh, all the quantitative stuff, and there are a few things, uh, you know, two to three founders tends to be an ideal number of founders for a company. Uh, companies with one founder or with more than three tends to do worse and things like that. There's a few statistics that uh, come out of this, but primarily what you're looking at is the social signals that surround a deal. That is, you're actually applying data to get quantitative scores on other people's judgment. That is how many people uh, that came from top uh, universities went to work at certain startups. You're actually using by proxy what their judgment is of the quality of a particular startup. Uh, who became an advisor? Who was an early investor? What's the background of the founders? You're all using these um, uh, things that are actually signals of what other people think rather than direct data about the startup. And so that also uh, pro provides a challenge for looking at this data. But the data is fascinating. I, I mean, it really uh, does provide some, some unusual insights into ways people have misperceived early stage investing to date. No, it, it is fascinating just listening to the data sets that you are talking about. But uh, any progress, uh, Kevin, so far in terms of standardizing uh, these signals or, or data insights? Uh, we are certainly uh, working through that now. I can tell you some of the interesting insights uh, that we've come to so far. The sure. uh, couple, uh, first one is that uh, and this should be obvious intuitively, but investors don't act as if it's true, is mm -hmm. that the mean return so far on the portfolio is significantly higher than the median return on the portfolio, meaning <laughs> that's an, a direct implication of the outliers drive most of the returns, right? You have one Uber in the portfolio, and uh, your portfolio is going to be much bigger than if you don't. But what that implies investors should be doing is investing very broadly in startups. Investors who think they can pick which startup will be successful and are picking five or 10 startups are just likely to miss the next Uber. And so uh, the ideal portfolio, uh, when I, whenever we dig down and do analytics on it, looks to be... Uh, 60, 80, 100 startups, not uh, 5, 10, 20, which tends to be a typical VC portfolio. And so many investors will understand this uh, hypothetically, but in practice will still try to double down on 10 startups or, or 15 startups instead of go very broad. 
Um, and so that's that's very interesting. Now, of course, you have to figure out how not to do what they call spray and pray, which is just put money in every startup that comes by. You do have to have some sort of standards to select the pool of startups that is likely to have the successes. Um, but the idea that you can identify an individual startup that will be a success, the data just shows that that doesn't doesn't appear to be true. Hmm. Fascinating. I, I know. I, I think if 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 you can come up, uh, you know, regularly, annually, or or whatever it takes, these insights, I, I'm sure they will become kind of benchmarks. I would love to. So we're we're crunching through the data right now for that. The challenge we have is uh, our data starts in earnest in 2014. Hmm. So we have three years of data, which means the startups uh, that are most successful have not yet uh, gone public or been bought or things like that. We've had some early successes, no question. Cruise Automation got bought but for a billion dollars by uh, General Motors. But uh, the most of the startups in the portfolio will tend to take a very long time to develop. Uh, Uber raised via AngelList. It's still private. We don't know what the ultimate outcome of Uber will be for the early investors in Uber. So uh, it, we will still have to wait a while for those those ultimate outcomes. Right now, we're looking primarily at what the follow-on and survival rates are for startups and which startups are getting funded by uh, credible venture backers and using that uh, as a a proxy for, yes, this is the pool of startups still likely to uh, achieve a large success. Hmm. I know it's too open a question to ask, but uh, what what is average mortality rate for startups uh, if you were to look at a couple of years? Uh, is it possible to look at that <laughs> approximately? It is actually a difficult question because it depends on what you define as a startup, right? Because uh, you have a mortality rate of something like 95% if you're counting people who came up with an idea and got far enough to run around telling people it's a startup, right? <laughs> but by the time you get to people who uh, raised serious financing, um, so far, uh, roughly 40 to 50% of those go on to raise a Series A. Um, thereafter, I would just uh, look up and use kind of the standard uh, rates for survival at Series A to B to C, et cetera. It's been the angel data that's been missing. So on AngelList, so far, if you unwind to those that are, are 18 months or older, it tends to be in the 40 to 50% follow-on rate. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, final couple of questions, Kevin. The other thing I always wanted to ask you is, from from where you look, you know, sit and, and you look ahead, what is the science fiction view of, uh, you know, everything that you are doing today, uh, say, in the year oh. to come? <laughs> Oh yes, I, I, well, it's it's partially a dream, um, but it is a science fiction view. It's the way things are going. Is with all of this technology that allows for information flow and allows for more efficient movement of capital and people, we're moving to a point where the ideal size of a company is smaller. I mean, ideally, you'd love to go down to. 
uh, everything being within a tiny founding group and then being able, that founding group being able to focus completely and outsource everything. Mm -hmm. And that's the direction we're going. That's what, what we're trying to help along, uh, just in our own little way is, uh, being able to make all the other functions that you used to have to hire entire departments for, um, something that you just do using tools online. And we're part of a trend that's moving that direction in general. Right. So it, you used to have to hire a CFO as a startup early on hmm. because that's how you raised money and, and uh, tracked what you did and so forth. Um, you used to have to hire your recruiter early on. Um, you used to have to hire a marketing officer. But now you're using app stores for distribution and uh, viral marketing for your initial marketing and uh, Twitter and things like that. So what's happening is each piece that you used to hire a department for now becomes something that a founder can do. Um, they can learn and do, and it is so much more efficient to coordinate with yourself or with your small group of people that you're working with than it is to try to coordinate a team of 50. Now, if you're big and successful, you'll still grow, no question. But that makes the ability to try and take your whole company and try your idea out in the marketplace so much higher. So I, I just have this dream that there are going to be 10 times the number of startups that there used to be trying some of the crazier ideas, some of which work out. Uh, the, you know, it's going to be a startup, I think, that that figures out the the cure for cancer or figures out um, how to do electric cars. Well, that was a startup. That was Tesla who kind of <laughs> finally made it a uh, mass market thing in the U.S. So uh, there's it's it's startups that are going to figure these out, and it's going to be the crazier ideas. Um, our ability to be able to do those at scale so that you have tons of them and they get their full shot uh, is what we're moving to in the, the the science fiction world, as you described it. But I don't think it's too far away. I don't think it's too crazy in the future. <laughs> we can all wish each other a crazy future for sure. And that would be fun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So great talking to you, Kevin. And uh, Godspeed with everything that you're trying to do. Great. Thank you. Yeah, you got me on a soapbox and talking about some of the things I'm very excited about. So <laughs> thank you. It's good talking. Yeah, we'll keep in touch. Take care. Bye. Bye.